Wonderful, great. Well, I tell you what, it's good to have light up here. It was getting pretty dark, and uh, now it's almost too much. Like my notes are beaming off the uh, pulpit over here. Uh, so it's good, it's good. Oh boy, so much. Let's pray and get right to it. Let's pray together one more time. Father, again, we commit this time to you. We ask for your grace, your mercy now, for your encouragement. We pray that by your Spirit you would minister to us, that you would uh, help us, Lord, to discern uh, your word. And as we look into your word, uh, I pray that the ministry of your word would really be uh, powerful and effective as you by your Spirit, uh, choose to bless, Lord, and to come down and to uh, work in our midst and to work among us and to use, Lord, this word, my feeble efforts to try to uh, express or to try to estimate here what it is that your word is teaching. Help us, Lord. uh, Give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to the church today. Father, we we ask your blessing now. We pray, please be, be glorified, be magnified, and And all that we say here today, all that we do, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. What a, well, here we are, Uh, we're kind of the tail end now of this chapter, and uh, we are staring in the face of a very, very uh, important chapter in 2 Thessalonians, namely chapter 2, it deals with the doctrine of any Christ, so we are going to shift Serious gears. Chapter 2, we shift real gears here. Uh, We're going from uh, what I had originally desired to uh, design as a New Year's message to try to give us uh, some impetus to live another year. Sorry, guys. I know you don't. Many of you want to, but you got to face another year. Here it comes, right? It's like the elections start in 2019 again. It's like we can't get away from the politics, we can't get away from the news, we can't get away from the culture, you know, and the craziness, Uh, but uh, here we go again. But really, more than that is our our walk, our walk, our church, our lives, and what Paul's desire here, it's a good desire, It's it's a godly desire. I was personally ministered to by Paul's prayer because he is a pastor. Uh, He is a pastor and he's looking at this church. And his view of the church is that the church would just, if you want to sort of sum up the whole sermon in one sentence, one easy sentence that you can discuss over dinner tonight, is that this is the pastor, of course he's an apostle, Paul, and his prayer is that the church will grow spiritually. That's it. Uh, It's very simple. Uh, What's the vision for every church, uh, for any biblical church? It's not the marketing. It's not the church growth programs. It's not the building that we meet in. It's not even the nice lights that you preach under. It's the spiritual well-being and the spiritual maturity and the spiritual advancement of your people because all spiritual maturity, all spiritual advancement is sanctification. And sanctification is nothing other than conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. And so what's the great goal of the pastor? What is the great goal of preaching? The great goal of ministry? It's that our lives look more 
like Christ. That's it. That is a, the whole objective of our lives is that we take on more of His beauty, more of His attributes, and more of His characteristics, more of His virtues, more of His holiness into our own life. And from a pastoral ministry perspective, you know one of the things that discourages pastors? Just tell you, give you a little insight. I was reading a commentary by John MacArthur some time ago, and he was, uh, he was sharing in the commentary a letter, a real letter written by a real pastor that was calling it quits. And he called it quits because in, in this letter he just unloaded years of bitterness and resentment and hurt and pain. And it was just like emotional vomiting. I mean, it just all came out. And this pastor was confessing to another pastor friend how that he is tired. He is tired that his sermons are not being listened to, that the prayer meetings are not attended, that the evangelism is not engaged, that people are not excited, they're not contributing, that they're not tithing, that they're not serving, that they're not... It's like everything he's doing is just falling on deaf ears. And he says in the letter... So I'm quitting, my friend. Don't judge me too harshly. And any pastor would be lying to you if they say, I do not resonate with that letter. Uh, because we do. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and following, he says, we have received this ministry and therefore we do not lose heart because we have received mercy. And because it takes mercy uh, to engage in pastoral ministry because you want above everything. Sometimes I think pastors have delusions of grandeur for the wrong reasons, but I think out of a sincere heart and out of a pure pastoral heart, really it is the spiritual growth and advancement of your people. You just want them to grow, to, you know, it's like sin less, you know, uh, serve more, you know, uh, uh, you know, be more zealous for the things of God. Uh, that's what any biblical ministry and pastor wants. And you know what? This is Paul's desire for the Thessalonians. He wants them to uh, he wants them to be blessed by God in such a way that God will bless every desire for good, that God would empower their faith so that they can live consistent with their calling. And um, this is a godly desire, brothers and sisters, because first and foremost, it is a des- first and foremost, it is a desire that is found in God. And to show you that, you turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter five. Isaiah chapter five. You remember what Jesus, his own desire for the church. You remember it's all rooted there too. When Jesus said in John chapter fifteen, "I am the vine; you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit." And so what Jesus is saying, and then he goes on to say, this is the will of my Father that you would bear much fruit. And so God's will, meaning his express will, meaning the will of command, the things that he has revealed is that this, this is what he's revealed. He wants you to be fruitful, productive, and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is his express will. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to put a fleece out. You don't got to cast lots or anything else. 
you gotta, you just know that that's God's will, that's God's desire, and he expresses it. And when Jesus said that, he was actually harking back to Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, the reason I'm going there and not to the John passage is because Isaiah 5 touches on something that I wanted to touch on, and namely this, that God, in his grace, has mercifully provided the conditions for our flourishing. Look what it says. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around. He removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewned out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. Like good fruit, but it produced only worthless ones. Jump down to verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? (sighs) To whom much is given... Much is required. We are given a lot in this church. We're given a lot, uh, even if you have come to not appreciate it, even if you have come not to utilize it. But we have been given a lot in this church by the grace of God, simply because uh, we preach God's word, simply because we gather for worship, simply because we have opportunities to serve, simply because we do evangelism, simply because we, we come together for uh, for uh, the ordinances, we, we have a biblical church model, I believe, a plurality of elders. We have deacons who serve us. We have men and sisters, brothers and sisters in the body who are uh, encouraging and have the capacity to enlarge your understanding of the will of God, of the word of God. We have people, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but you have people in your church that are ready to fellowship with you. We have all of that. And we have all the conditions for our flourishing. They've all been met. And go even deeper than that. We have the Spirit in our hearts. Remember the New Covenant? We have the Spirit within us. And the ministry of the Spirit is that He testifies to us, He convicts us, He guides us, He illuminates us, He anoints us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 26 and 27. So what? So that we know all things, so that no one has to teach us. In other words, He keeps us in the gospel. We have His Word, His precious Word. And I'm speaking of myself as much as I am speaking to you today, brothers and sisters. I am preaching to myself as much as I am, I am preaching to you that I have been equipped. And what actually brought me down this path, this line of thinking in my sermon? My library. I just put some new books in my library. Really proud of those books. Uh, they sometimes it's just like trophies. Careful, not idols, but they're trophies up there. They're, they're blessings. They're gifts of God. But I was sitting in my office. I turned around. I was like, this office, this, these books are, this is beautiful. Like, I have all these books. And then I was haunted by the quote by John Piper when he talked about uh, Jonathan Edwards. And he said, like, Piper said, I sit in my office looking at books and all the books I'm not going to get to read before I die. (laughs) I said, okay, even if I don't get to read all those books, I still got them right now and they look nice. 
I just got a new John Owen book. I put it up there, and I said to myself, boy, I am surrounded by a great cloud of witness. I have been so blessed as a pastor. Uh, one of uh, Joseph Urban's early newsletters, I remember from years ago, when they had met a pastor in one of the early cities where he was preaching, and the pastor was so excited to meet Joseph that he was a pastor too. And he said, wait, wait here, don't move. He says, I'm going to bring you my library. And he brought him a stack of books about this big. And he was beaming that he had these books. And this is his library. That's it. And I thought, man, I to whom much is given, much is required. Brothers and sisters, well, I'm not feeling the weight of that on my own. I'm giving it to you right now. To whom much is given, much is required. And we have been given the conditions All the conditions have been met, I think, for us to live consistent Christian lives that are fruitful and that are productive and that are God-glorifying. We've been given it all. We have it all. So in a sense, this sermon is about what you're going to do with it. That's what the sermon is really all about. And that's what Paul is getting at here when he speaks about Uh, his expressed desire for these people in his prayer. This is a prayer because he says in verse 11, to this end we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. What is he saying there? It's almost like Paul is going going to the judgment. Paul is like fast forward to the judgment day where God counts you worthy. Then he brings you back to your calling. And so it's almost like, you know, my prayer, Paul is saying, is that on that day, it will be that you were counted worthy of the calling with which you were called, which is the gospel, which he was the one that, you know, he was he was the one that was uh, privileged and enabled to bless uh, the church with bringing the gospel to them. And so his heart and his expectation was, I hope, I pray, I pray that on that day that that God's uh, consideration of you will be that you are worthy of the kingdom. Uh, when I was in uh, Mexico for that conference, I ran into a dear, a dear, uh, a dear friend and possible brother. I think he's a brother. But many years ago, when I was in Mexico the first time with Joseph, I had uh, met this brother, and I just, I just took to this brother. I just, I fell in love with this guy. This guy was just great, just zealous. He just had a demeanor. He just had a disposition. He just had a, a servant's heart and just a lovely kindred spirit. And since that time, it has not gone well with him. Since that time, he's been through all kinds of crazy stuff, sin, church discipline, his life is thrashed uh, by sin. Um, when I looked at him this time around, he looked aged. He looked worn out. He looked like he'd been in the world and just thrashed by the devil. And uh, when I saw him, he started weeping. And I laid my hand on him and I said, man, I'm praying for you, man. I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you will be counted worthy of the calling, brother. I'm praying that you're going to live consistent Christianity. 
And uh, we had a sweet conversation. I was so glad he was there. Everywhere he could have been, he was at the conference. Praise the Lord. So hopefully that means he's making a comeback and that the Lord is going to work in his life. But I'm just thinking, like, that is, that, is, that is parabolic of our lives, is it not? One decision away. One decision away of just ending up just like that. Right? And I've seen it time and time and time and time and time again. And therefore... Paul is praying for no small thing here. He is praying for their all. And also pastorally, so that, uh, you know, let's go back to New Year's. So pastorally, New Year's, what are the things that I could be praying for you for? All kinds of stuff, right? I could be praying for health. I could be praying for wealth for prosperity, not even in a bad way, but just that God provides for you, takes care of you, kids are well-fed and happy and healthy and house is well and the job is well and all of that is well. But the Apostle Paul zeroes in on this church and don't forget in the back of your mind, you need to have this understanding that the Thessalonian church is a baby church. It's a baby church, kind of like our church. In scopes of churches, you know, a church that's only a few years old, you know, six, seven years old, that's baby church, okay? This is a baby, baby church. This is like six months old, this church. Very fragile. Very, um, uh, very, the potential for something to go wrong is really big. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And for them to get really grounded and deep and mature and steadfast, uh, that's what we're all praying for. And uh, Paul is praying, man, that you will last in the kingdom of God, right? Because it's volatile what's going on in Thessalonica. Jason already went to jail. They already harassed his whole family. They came to his house. What's next? Uh, Where are we going to go from there? More persecution to come? Martyrdom around the the corner? What's coming? And uh, of all the things that the Apostle Paul could have prayed for them, he prays for them so that they would grow spiritually, that they would mature in the faith. And this is exactly why he um, prays for their spiritual well-being, because it's something that he himself has tasted of. Look with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. They are, this church, and so are we all the time, they are right at the edge of making an all-important determination for their lives. Will I, above everything, value Christ? Will I, above everything, value Christ? Because that's something Paul had to do. That's a decision Paul had to make. That is a place that Paul has gone. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for Christ's sake. And this is the big one. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom, and he says it again because it probably it probably changed him. Uh, it probably emotionally, psychologically, practically had an impact. It, it probably wounded him, some of this, what's in this word. I have suffered the loss of all things. We're talking family, friends, community, reputation. You're standing in the synagogue. All of it. 
money could be a big lucrative career to be a high-standing Pharisee at this time in the first century. You have a lot of power, a lot of sway over people's lives, and for him to suffer the loss of everything is a big deal. And he says, I took the hit. I suffered the loss. And I now count it as rubbish. Or, maybe even a little bit more provocative term, dung. It is that. It is that in contrast to the gain of it all. What is the gain? Christ and His glory. Christ and His beauty. Christ and His magnificence. Christ and His salvation. That is worth everything for me. And so for the Apostle Paul, no problem for me to lose this. And so, and so, and so for him, he's praying, you would have the same estimation of your lives as well. And in doing that, you will understand what life is all about. You will live for what you're supposed to be living for. If you look at Second Thessalon- uh, Thessalonians, you look at the end of the chapter there, there is a close parallel to what the Apostle Paul is talking about here just in terms of calling and, and bringing you to that end, even as he prays here in this text. But look at verse 14 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, It was for this He called you through our gospel that you would gain or may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, so then, so then, now that we know why he called you, why he summoned you. I was taking the dog for a walk last night, and as I was walking, I was walking through my conversion. For some reason, it was just heavy on my heart, uh, how I got saved, what transpired during, during those days and hours, and, and what, took, what took place there. And the reason he did all of that in my life, the reason he invaded my life on that day was so that I would gain the glory of Jesus Christ. Praise God. And, and, but here's the response. Brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, which is just a, a reference to the apostolic doctrine of the cross. He says, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And so, brothers and sisters, this is no mean task. In other words, this is no mere uh, exercise in religion that we do week in and week out every Lord's Day that we come into this place. Brothers and sisters, do not slip into the state of mind that what we are doing is mere rote religion. That it's just ho-hum, here I come into the church. It is not that. It is not that. It is much more than that. It is the means that we will occupy for the rest of our lives in and on our way to gaining the glory of Jesus Christ. Oh, curse our flesh that so numbs us to this, that so deceives us into thinking in a temporal, mundane, mundane, earthly fashion. Where we, eschatology, we sometimes can't think past our front to- our toes on our feet. We have no vision for our lives eschatologically. We don't have that understanding that our lives are on a trajectory upward. And that we are going to heaven. 
the less we are blind to that, the less we're going to see the beauty of eschatology. In a sense, brothers and sisters, there can be nothing worse, nothing more upside down, backwards and contradictory than a creature who has been called by God, granted everlasting life, and does not live like it. Does not live like it. And so therefore, Paul wants to make sure these brethren live like it. They live like they've been called. How do we do that? Well, evidence. There's got to be evidence in our life. Praise God for practical evidence that you have been called and that God not only is calling you, but that God is going to bring you into His everlasting kingdom. James says in James chapter 2, verse 14, faith without works is dead. Dead. And that's a big deal. So, dead faith will not produce evidence. Um, Further than that, it will not produce the right kind of evidence. Dead faith will not produce the genuine type of evidence that suggests to us, proves to us, affirms us, comforts us, is God's means that He uses to bring greater assurance in our hearts that we are, in fact, possessing saving faith. We've got to have that evidence. And that is what the Apostle Paul here is asking, that they would be enlarged in that. Look at the text back in our passage here in chapter 1. What does he say here? He says, not only that our God would count you worthy of His calling, he says, but God, the subject, that He would fulfill every desire for goodness and work of faith with power. There is a lot there. Number one, understand that God blesses the desire for good. So much malice in the world. So much wickedness. So much envy. So much strife. So much evil intent. False motives. So much hypocrisy and insincerity. Just taints everything everywhere. It's just permeates the human condition. It just literally soils everything that people do. There is something at work in it. Uh, unreal. You guys know I like dogs. I train dogs, you know, from time to time. My last dog was a angry pit bull try to get me. Why is it always the pit bulls? I love them the most and they try to get me the most. Uh, I hung him by his neck and saved myself. But the dog whisperer, Caesar Milan, is uh, thought to be worth, I think the latest estimates, his dog kingdom, he's thought to be worth somewhere around $30 million or something like that. Well, they said that that number would probably be double had not his ex-wife cooked the books and stole untold millions from her husband. Wow. This is what I'm talking about. Seemingly nice situation, husband, wife, married, flourishing business. They're on television. Everything's going good as far as that goes. All the while, there is this malicious, insincere undermining going on. 
And what a parable of the whole, the way the whole world works at times, isn't it? Sad. And so Christians, we have the opportunity because goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, when we are called, we are invested with a goodness that is not our own. We are given a virtue that in it of ourselves, that is in our flesh where nothing good dwells, we do not have that goodness. We do not have that level of moral purity. We do not have that level of purity of motives. God has to give it to us. And this is what's so glorious. He says, may God fulfill, that's an interesting word, fulfill, right? May God fulfill every desire for goodness. In other words, What does God want to bless? What does God want to bless in our lives? He wants to bless a godly ambition. And so therefore we need to take stock. What is our ambition? Where do our ambitions lie? What do we desire? What do we want to do? I think maybe both phrases in terms of uh, the desire for goodness and the work of faith Maybe those are meant to kind of go together so that we do not make the mistake that any sort of benevolent concept is in view, but specifically as it relates to your spirituality, as it relates to a godly ambition, a holy ambition. In in, in other words, as it relates to spiritual things like your heart's desire, your motives, your affections, God wants to affect our affections. That's I'm getting the word affections from the word desire. Desire all arises out of the desire, but then we have a perfect counterbalance going on here because God does not just want to bless the desire for good, but He also wants to empower the work of faith. Now, faith is not a thing. It's not, you can't bring me a bowl of faith, right? Uh, Faith is a virtue. Faith is a grace. It is a gift of God, Philippians 1.29. It is God's gift to us, right? Not, uh, what does Paul later go on to say? Not all men have faith. And therefore, faith is a gift that God gives to His people. And when it says the work of faith, it literally means the work that faith produces. It it produces a certain work. It produces, it it manifests a certain uh, 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 evidence in your life. And it just reaffirms your faith. But that is what God wants to do. He says He wants to bless the work of faith. And then He uses this word here, in power. Which is just so easy for preachers to take that and say, this is God's uh, uh, empowering the work of faith or the labor of faith or something like that. And that's exactly what God wants to do. He wants to empower the work of faith, our fruit. He wants to get behind it and He wants to energize it and give it power. He doesn't want us to be haphazard. What's the opposite of power, brothers and sisters? The opposite of power is weakness. He doesn't want your faith to be weak. He he doesn't want your walk to be weak. He doesn't want you to have weak, feeble faith. He doesn't want a faith that means well but doesn't really do anything. That's not good faith. That's not powerful faith. That's not empowered faith. He wants faith that executes genuine Christian work, genuine fruit, and he wants to execute it with power. 
And the other reason why power is important here is because we are being told that this power is supplied by God. He gives us the power. It's His power. It is not our power. Uh, look with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because this is a lesson that the Apostle Paul knew of his own works. He understood this of his entire ministry and his entire life that his whole, the, 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 the fruitfulness of his life was owing not to something in him. It's almost like this. If you were to meet the Apostle Paul, you run into him in the hallway of the church or you just bumped into him in the streets of Jerusalem or something, I would be in awe. What about you? You ever stood next to a famous person? You know how weird you get? You know, get your phone, you know. What do we do these uh, Trish and I were having a dinner at a restaurant, and I looked over my shoulder and said, oh, there's Dak Prescott. Isn't he the uh, Cowboys guy? And you should see the whole restaurant. Clean, 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 clean. Everybody's putting their stuff down. It's like, keep eating. It's just Dak Prescott. But that's how we get when we get around famous people. And then, after Dak, all these cowboys started walking in. So it was like half of the cowboys were in this restaurant. And um, they're out there roaring their cars and peeling out in the, dry, in the parking lot. Anyway, uh, real impressive. But everybody got weird. <laughs> Trish is like, is that like the cowboys? I'm like, yeah, you know the thing called the cowboys around here? Trish is so clueless. I mean, she's just, hi, hi, Trish. I think they're feeding her the, she could care less about this world. Um, I'm like, yeah, that's the Cowboys, you know, quarterback guy. <laughs> it's like a big deal, you know? I wanted to get up and take a selfie with the guy. <laughs> so it, it, it's a testimony, brothers and sisters, of how we get when we get some next to somebody that we have a high esteem for. And I tell you, if I met the Apostle Paul, I would, I would be pretty moved. I would stand in front of that man and be like, I don't even know what to say or to think. And I think he would look at me and he would say, it wasn't me. It's not my power. It wasn't my strength. I didn't do these things of myself. You're looking, you're looking at a shell. You're looking at an earthen vessel that God decided to fill and to store his treasure and to empower for service. I tell you what, man, if you get this, if you, if you can harness this, it changes everything. It's just to liberate you just to live for God and just, it's just like God First, man, you know, infinitely second. I don't like the website, I am second. I told them they need to change the wristband to I am last because I don't like the God first and then I'm second. Really? Man, you're pretty high up in the pecking order. Anyway, <laughs> I am last. I am nothing. I am vile next to his beauty. And so Paul understood this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, he says, I'm the last... I'm the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. So this is speaking present tense. This is the estimation of Paul of himself, present tense. Because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored. There's the power. There's the work of faith. 
I labored even more than they all, yet not I. Oh, every time. It's almost like Paul, he couldn't utter a self-aggrandizing statement without humbling himself immediately upon saying the statement, right? And yet not I, but the grace of God with me, with me, in me, because that is what God loves to bless. God is going to bless us all this way by giving us the conditions that we need in order for the work of faith to flourish. He's going to take out the rocks and the thorns and the thistles. He's built a big tower in the midst of our lives to protect us, to watch over us. He promises to water us, to replenish us. He promises to be everything that we need in life and in godliness. And it's I don't want to say it's up to us because that sounds almost too, you know, self-centered, but you know what I mean. There is a responsibility and an obligation that we bear, brothers and sisters, to avail ourselves to the means of grace weekly. And it begins with your desire, your affections. So when you take the cup and you take the bread, in the internal desire of your heart, you should just bow and say, Give me a heart, a heart that holds these things in his hand, in her hand, and they're not rote. This is not just empty religion like the Mormons down the street. This is real. This work is holy work. And it all goes somewhere interesting but that he begins and ends I think with the same concept of eschatology because he counts you worthy of the calling right? and then the whole purpose for him empowering you, gifting you, supplying you with all that you need in this life is for what we can call Paul's prayer for mutual glory mutual glory. It says, so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a tricky, this is a tricky uh, a passage in, in one sense for a couple reasons. Number one, because there seems to be this mutual, almost a symmetry that's going on that we glorify His name and then there is where we come in and you in him and so what that does not mean is we will glorify the name of jesus and your name in him no 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 nothing like that it's in a sense it's almost like a play on words the name of the lord jesus will be glorified meaning uh their glorified means something like made much of it would be exalted it would be uh magnified and and praised for all eternity And that's going to begin in your life and through your life. And then in the midst of him receiving his eschatological glory for his name, you also, because you are in him, you will be glorified. And that glorification there speaks of actual glorification. And it's all because we are in him. It's all because union with Christ. And by virtue of our union with Christ, we will be glorified. 
Turn with me in your Bibles to maybe a couple more places. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. It's interesting because Peter concludes in much the same way, with the same ultimate aim in mind, with the same good works and service unto the Lord in mind, namely that God, will go, that God would be glorified through a church that is gifted and equipped by Him, having provided all the conditions and all of the things that we need in order for us to serve in His strength, resulting in His glory. He says in 1 Peter 4.11, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice that Paul does not call for Christ. Uh, to be glorified, but for His name to be glorified. Christ is glorified in that sense already, but His name is going to be glorified among us and through us. But kind of like Paul did, we have to qualify that. And he does qualify that because he says that this is in accordance with the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ, which basically means we don't get the glory for all of this glory. We don't get the glory for glorification. All of this glory is owing to Him and to His grace. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, let me try to bring this home. Remember the context in which we are in. The context surrounding this precious statement of being a fruitful Christian, of growing, of thriving in our Christianity, the context that surrounds this is a volatile context. Persecution on one side, if you guys know what's on the other side, chapter 2, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, and boy, does that will that, by God's grace, God willing, Though that plunges into a really amazing, hopefully, I mean, at least for me, study. But, but th these are serious times these Thessalonians are, are, are living in. And so this, this note here of mutual glory with the Lord, this is hope. This is for their hope. This is so that they don't lose hope. They don't lose courage. They don't lose their vision of what's coming because, again, they could be thinking like this, and I was really, really trying to put myself in the feet of these Christians because it is so foreign to me, you all, that to be persecuted for my faith is not the world I live in. And, and the questions could come like this. Who's going to go to jail next? When's the last time you asked yourself that as a Christian? Never. Will they come for more of us? Do they know where I live? Will we be martyred? What about my job? What's going to happen to my house? Uh, what about my children? If I go to jail for the Lord, who's going to take care of Eden? If Trisha and I go to jail, where does Eden go? Do you understand how terrifying these Christians? This is terrifying. And Paul is telling them, hold on, hold on. Because you are in him, you are going to be glorified. And unless you maintain, man, you've got to go to some deep places in your heart and in your soul 
to say this whole talk about glory and heaven and gaining the kingdom and all of that, if I'm going to even care, if this is even going to hold me together, like in real practical life, when things get serious, I, I need to believe this. I got to believe this. Like if I don't believe this, forget it. It's not going to work. And therefore, the Apostle Peter reminds them and us exactly what stage of life and what stage of redemption, meaning their salvation, that this early church was in. This is a verse for all of us, brothers and sisters. I don't know what 2019 is going to hold for us. Uh, In one sense, I don't care. Uh, I don't care what happens politically, militarily, economically, socially, uh, in terms of health, whatever, uh, whatever crazy 5G technology they're going to unleash on us. Because <clears throat> Paul already said in, in the first book, first letter, that we are destined to suffer. We're destined to suffer. You know the very thing we're all trying to get away from all the time? <laughs> right? No suffering, please. No thank you, please. Right? Don't want to get sick. I don't want to be around sick people. You know, we've got to send out emails. Don't come if you're sick. But particularly persecution, cultural oppression, living in the present evil age, that can have a toll. That has a serious toll uh, on us. We'll talk a lot more about that in the days to come. But Peter reminds us of where we stand with that. He says, after you have suffered for a little while. That's our whole life, everybody. That's what Peter says our whole life is, a little while. Just a short, how did Paul, how did Paul put it? It's just a momentary time of affliction. That's it. Just momentary. It's going to hurt for a little bit, and then it's over. <laughs> you know, And that's true. That's the way life is. He says, after we suffer for a little bit, The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, parallel passage, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, and to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does Paul do for the church? He blesses the church. He could have gave them any advice. He could have told them, ah, Let's pray that soon a different emperor will come into power. You know, like what happened with Constantine 300 years after this letter, Thessalonians. Let's Let's pray that one day we won't have the Nero's and the Domitians of the world who will just persecute the church endlessly. Let's pray that eventually the right politician will take power and we'll be okay. It's not what he prayed. What he prays is your vision, your hope, your eyes, your sight, the eyes of your heart. Where are you at? What are you looking at? What are you consumed by? If it's not the glory of Jesus and gaining his kingdom, I promise you, you will be consumed by these momentary light afflictions that are here to sanctify us in the first place. Pray for us. Father, Lord, too many times we don't have the right view of our trials. I confess that too often when we suffer, when we're sick, when we're persecuted, whether we're persecuted at work, whether we're persecuted in the ministry, whether we're persecuted with family, 
whether we are judged by other Christians because we want to raise our children right, because we want to dress modestly, because we don't want to be worldly, because we want to live godly and sensibly in the present age, whatever it may be, help us not to lose sight of what these afflictions are for, that they're here to produce Christ-likeness, and in producing that Christ-likeness in our lives, we will be useful in our calling, and we will be productive, and we already have your promise, and we want to thank you, Lord. We want to thank you for the promises that you have given us here in this text, that you love to bless godly desire, that you will fulfill it, that you will be the one that will bring it all to pass, and that you love to bless the work of faith. And so as we step out in faith, as we engage in good deeds, in loving and serving one another, we know that we have your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.